Welcome to another episode of The False Neutral. According to Garrett's edict, there is a the before it. That's right. And we're going to talk about Brit bikes today. We're going to pay homage to jolly old England. Before we do that, we need to talk about old business. Our oddball bike episode was very well received, and we have, as Eric predicted, gotten lots of good suggestions about bikes that should have been talked about and weren't. I appreciate the comments that you guys leave. Uh, I will mention three of them that I thought were absolutely fantastic and should have been mentioned. One thing is, in that episode, we really only talked about from the 70s forward, except that I thought of the Nera car when we were talking about center hub steering kind of just off the top of my head, but we really did not get into old, antique, vintage bikes past uh, the 40 years old or so. And um, unfortunately, I'm going off the top of my head, so I can't give props to the people who suggested these. But uh, one of our listeners suggested the Magola, the one with the five-cylinder uh, clutchless rotary engine inside the front wheel, which is uh, the one bike that Alan Cathcart said he was scared to turn. He would only <laughs> ride it straight because he did not want to turn it. So that's definitely a weird, downright scary bike. The I del- never heard of never heard never heard of that one. Yeah, it's it's back uh, pre-war, thirties maybe twenties possibly. Uh, I will put a picture in the link or you know in the in our Hooniverse post. Of that, um, and maybe put the link into uh, Alan Cathcart's article of writing it, and just truly how scary it was because it was dire- it was the motor rotated as the hub of the wheel, so there was no clutch, so you had to push start it, and when it popped, it was going. So in order to come to a complete stop, <laughs> you had to That's- kill the engine. <laughs> Pretty frightening. Reminds me of the old motorcycles that basically they had the throttles wired open and once it got oh, going. The board, the board, board track. track board track yeah, yeah, yeah. And it had a gigantic amount of gyroscopic precession because of all of the weight of the entire engine that was turning with the right. front wheel. So another one was the Jalera CX, which we should have thought about. That one was modern enough that I remember when that came out and it was a single-sided fork and single-sided swing arm on a i believe it was a 125 two-stroke water-cooled single sounds about right i think and uh the is that like mid 90s mm, i was gonna say late 80s but uh yeah yeah yeah. in in my riding lifetime anyways so it's been after 1980 And uh, the last one is uh, slipping my mind at the moment. Um, well, the, the same person that mentioned the Magola also mentioned Cannondale's attempt yeah. oh, at yes, a motorcycle. Yes, yes. 
which I do remember I'm those. really surprised that I forgot about because, you know, I write a lot of off road and the Cannondale was, I mean, just kind of an embarrassing attempt at a motorcycle. They had a, a lot of issues, which is probably to be expected with uh, such a new machine. But God, it was just a weird kind of a weird attempt. Um, I really love Cannondale bicycles, but the the ATV and the motorcycle that they tried to make just was awful. And then, you know, we talked about the uh, Talajet Dragster. And I don't know mm-hmm. why I didn't think about it. But something that's like uh, moderately similar in terms of styling that I completely forgot about but love is the Honda Cub 90. Not Not like the Trail 110 looking thing. But it's like the futuristic looking motorcycle that they I think they use uh, just kind of the same way as the Italajets. Um, they use them a lot as pit bikes, um, but they look almost like a watercraft. But they're a motorcycle, like super weird styling. And what is um, this? the Honda Cub 90? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and it was it was kind of like the Hurricane. It was fully enclosed. Right. And. A little bit, like kind of in between uh, an old Trail 90 and a and a BW 200. Because yeah, 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 I remember those. They're now. like bigger, tired. Um, but yeah, like you said, they're all enclosed. Um, I think that oh, they yes. only made okay. them in one yeah. color scheme, which was just like the red, white, and the blue. Um, they didn't look anything mm-hmm. like you know a motorcycle of its era. They're like completely different, and they never really caught on. And I don't know why. I don't know anything about them other than um, just the styling. When I was a kid, I always thought they were the coolest looking things ever. Um, but yeah, kind of similar to the Italajet, but um, Honda's little version. There is a, uh, as I pulled up the picture of it to remind myself, there is one that was red and white. And then the other interesting thing is there is one that someone put a... Uh, snowmobile ski on the back and, yeah, and you then, could, or, or a snowmobile track and then a ski that on was the actually a it. honda accessory that was it a was, honda line yeah. accessory from the that factory was straight from honda yep. yeah wow. which blows my mind i mean that's like the coolest thing i i mean it's just a 90s so i don't know if it would go too well but um when these came out i was really young and the idea that you could have like a motorcycle and then strap on a snow uh track to the back of it and a ski on the front coolest thing in the world uh, yeah, so uh, that never came up. Cannondale, there's probably a bunch that we missed. I'm sure we might have to have a part two oddball. Yeah. Uh, the other, the other one that that I was trying to think of was the Scott Flying Squirrel, which eventually became the Silk. But the Scott Flying Squirrel was a water cooled uh, vertical twin two stroke. Then they made oh, it really? through the 20s, um, and they didn't have a water pump. They just used thermosiphon. Ther- thermosiphon cooling where it was just the yeah. water boiling in the jacket naturally kind of vaporized went up in the radiator cooled off and then came back down and yeah. they were they were like considered touring bikes and they had a two into one not even a chamber just a just a two into one pipe on them and yeah. i think they had deflector pistons in them like old uh uh outboard engines it, it they actually were very innovative two strokes for the time. Uh, and they used a lot. They used an open, uh, uh, perimeter frame and water cooling. 
before World War II. So yeah. you know, they, they did a lot of things that nobody else picked up on until much, much later. Pete, can I just say, this picture of you, uh, it's on Hooniverse if anybody wants to see it. In the riding suit, in, posing in next my, to your MB5. In my Heingerica leathers, yes. I've my, been laughing since you posted that picture. <laughs> with with the, the helmet that I have in that picture, that silver bandit. It looks like a Simpson. Yeah, it's a Simpson bandit, but it's not yeah. even one of the good ones. It's one of the really crappy uh, <laughs> Helmtech Simpsons. Yeah. I sold that on eBay, and there was a bidding frenzy that went like, twice what my original buy it now was and some guy in japan paid me like 375 dollars for that helmet probably wow. four to five years ago All right, where, I, I missed that where is this one it's uh it's on hooniverse.com under the oddball bike episode comments okay. it came up because we, we were talking about the tx 750 i mean there's this guy on a tx 750 the 73 model that's like uh, gold and there's this guy, and his riding suit is epic. The right. epitome of the 70s. And, and I, I made a comment that that's exactly what I wanted to look like when I ride my TX750. Like, you know, the white pants, the red boots, the red jacket with the, like, silly 70s, like, bubble, gigantic astronaut-looking helmet. And I was almost <clears throat> certain that Pete had a riding suit that might have resembled that. And so I think I made a comment somewhere in there that the yeah, riding suit is exactly what I wanted to ride and that Pete might have one stashed away. And he did not disappoint. That picture is amazing. And, and that, <laughs> and those leathers are in my basement in a box. Oh God. So wow. I, I actually have been. What are you, 5'11", maybe in that picture about 175, 180? No, no, I'm, uh, 5'11", yes, but uh, I was maybe 150, 155 wow. pounds in that picture. So, Well, wow. there's a chance I could get those on me. If I ever make it to your neck of the woods, I might bring my TX750 freshly painted 70s orange or gold and throw those leathers on. The RD400 brochure for 1976. I will, I will have to post this picture, but it's on Hooniverse. I actually wrote an article about this brochure a long time ago on Hooniverse, but has the ultimate 1970s riding gear. A corduroy, <laughs> a corduroy blazer and, uh, a turtleneck and a turtleneck with, with an open ski face, goggles, ski goggles with an open face three quarter helmet, uh, riding an RD 400. That's just, no, man. Like, this is 2016 Portland, Oregon, right here. But I, I want to. I want to. You might not realize this picture is actually only a few months old. <laughs> <laughs> Taken in Hipsterville, USA. Well, I I won't. Uh, I, I I will let everyone. I'll have to post the link to the Hooniverse article. But I actually waxed very poetic about the this sales brochure and how it captured the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah. See, what you don't know is this guy is writing to go take pictures of lattes and talk on his corded phone inside no, Starbucks. He's on his <laughs> way to work. He, he's obviously an architect or... He's a business professional, yes, for sure. He, he's got blueprints rolled up and a briefcase, so he's on his way to work on his RD400 commuter bike. I like that it's not billowing smoke in the picture, though, because, of course, you couldn't have that in the brochure. <laughs> right. But in reality... Uh, at any rate, a couple of things that 
I thought was kind of interesting. So here pretty recently, Motorcycle.com announced that the MT-10, which here will be known as the FZ-10, California's CARB um, board certified it for sale in California. So the FZ-10 is coming, which I am super excited about because as we talked about on one of the past episodes, I was really thinking that the KTM Super Duke was going to be my next showroom new motorcycle. And that, I like the KTM Super Duke, but that was really my next motorcycle because there wasn't anything else that I really liked to compare it to. But the FC-10, on paper, I like more, I think. It's still kind of aggressive and angular and transformer-like in the styling. But the Yamaha's a little bit less aggressive, which I like. And I'm really excited about the motorcycle, so I'm not sure if you guys have really looked at it much yet, but it's definitely a welcome replacement, because the FC1 is so outdated at this point. It's an old bike. I'm going to have to say what you said about my beloved Moto Marini. Um, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't like it. (laughs) I think it's hideous. I think it's the worst version of what I don't like about bikes that, that... that bug-eyed <laughs> transformer, you know, looks like it's going to assemble itself into a space robot. It it's it's like a real bad nightmare from a really badly drawn techno anime mecha <clears throat> cartoon show. It's it's bad. I I don't agree. I mean, I think that it could look better. But that's not to say even that it looks bad or anywhere even remotely near bad. It's it's really angular, and I get that some people wouldn't like it for that reason. I'm not a big fan of uh, neon-colored wheels, so I would certainly have to change that. Um, you know, like, it's just like the Buell that I had. Um, in fact, these almost look like a, like a more aggressively styled Buell lightning from back in the day but um i bought one of the red buells with like the orange wheels on it and so i ended up making it all black uh with black wheels and so i would have to change the wheel color i mean that's just awful but um that aside i really i don't mind the looks of it at all and um the statistics on it are pretty staggering i mean it makes like 82 foot pounds of torque 160 horsepower. It's the same engine as the R1, but it has been optimized for kind of a different style of riding. And so uh, the statistics I really like. The uh, it reminds me a little bit of when Darth Vader's kind of like got his the 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 dome part of his head off or whatever, <laughs> um, and it's yeah. just kind of like the the breather part. So, but yeah. I I watched and I can't remember who was on 44 Teeth or Baron von Grumble, but. Um, he shot a, some video of it on the, on the intro and it yeah. sounds, sounds really amazing. Good. And then he's, he's like five minutes in and like, I love this bike. I love this yeah. bike. And he's you know, like, he's doing well, like third gear wheelies with the, with ease. It's just, yeah, it's, it's got like, tons of torque and I love, it sounds like a V motor, but it's not, it's just that cross well, like R1 shaft. flat plane crank. Yeah, yeah. And it just, they make it sound a lot like a V motor. The headlights and the fairing remind me of Zorak from <laughs> from Space Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> the way well, the way you kind of feel about the about the the whatever it's going to be called FZ10. Um, it's kind of every time I read something new about the the SV650. Yeah. I'm like. Oh, hmm. And I, and, and I'm trying not to get nostalgic about it because it was a bike that I kind of wanted, but never had. And yeah. as I'm getting older, I'm like, 
that could be a fun bike that's cheap. And if you happen to lay it down, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of thing. So, yeah. In a prior episode, we talked about value bikes. And I think that we talked a little bit about the CRF 250L. Yeah. And I don't know what we came to as far as a consensus on it. But one of my friends just messaged me the other day and said he's going to go buy one. And my first reaction was, for the love of God, do not buy one. Uh, they're like $5,000. They they make 23. What? Yeah, they make 23 horsepower, which I reminded him is only six horsepower more than his nine-year-old daughter's KX65 motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I feel like there's a there's a place and a person for that motorcycle, but he's an experienced motorcycle rider, and and I think that he sees that it's a 250, and but the thing is is it's a 250 to a like a normal powerful 250, like an XR 650L is compared to an XR 650R. It makes about half of the power as a performance 250 does. Um, and, and I don't think that he realizes this. And so I went on to Craigslist in our area and I found somebody that was selling a 2012 Yamaha WR250, which is an exponentially more capable motorcycle. It has less than 100 miles on it for the same price. And I'm trying to convince him to buy that instead, but he's already made up his mind. So mm. he's going to buy the CRF250L. It's really interesting that you should say that because I'm, I, I told you guys about my slight disappointment in my CL125 riding experience. Yeah. You, you cannot go home again. It was not the same as when I was 16 or 17 riding it. And I started looking into doing the 12 volt stator swap that you can do on those yeah. and adding it all up using used parts that may or may mm -hmm. not be good the first time out. My, my speedometer uh exploits have, have really kind of soured me on buying used parts off of uh yeah uh, uh eBay when they're not you know something you can tell whether they're correct or not from looking at pictures but yeah. uh it's going to be 150 to 200 dollars and I'm like man I am so far into this I did I sent you guys the picture last week last Thursday after work I did go look at the Kimco K pipe right which if you look at the measurements is really close in size to my uh, CL125. The wheelbase, the seat height, the overall length are just a you know within a couple within ten percent of my probably within five percent of my uh, CL125. Yeah, and when I got on it, you sit so far forward. I, it's the same thing I felt about the Duke 390 when I rode it. It's like sitting on a BMX bicycle. You yeah. are right over the handlebars. You feel like you have no motorcycle in front of you. And also, I found out, and I think this is really bizarre, the shift pattern is not one down, three up. It's neutral at the top, four, one to four down. That's really weird. Mm. And I'm like, what? And That's especially weird because I'm guessing that it's a clone Honda motor, or at least borrows a lot of the same design. Well, it's because it uh, it has an auto clutch in every other country in the world, and they installed a manual clutch here in the United mm. States. And a lot of those uh, four-speed auto clutch, you know, semi-automatics, 
have that shift pattern. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's really weird, though, because I was under the impression that the one down, all the rest of them sequentially up, was mandated by the DOT for importation since 1975. So I don't know how you can have a manual clutch and that shift pattern and be legal. And I mentioned that to the guy who goes, well, I think they're planning some kind of recall for that. And I was like, so you're oh, deliberately no. selling something that you're going to have to recall later to fix the shift pattern on and. I, I have to say the the foot pedals, the the brake pedal and the shift lever were were a little kludgy looking. You could tell that you know they were they were kind of fabricated crudely, but they were yeah, nice and they were nice and solid. Other than yeah. that, it looked like a really well put together motorcycle. There was nothing I would point mm-hmm. at and go, "Wow, that looks really hinky." It it looked really nice. Uh, so are you are you saying that you're ready to throw in the towel on your Honda and just bring I, home a K-pipe? I'm, I'm ready to throw in the towel on the Honda, but I don't know what for because I've gone up and down. I've got the Spider. As I've said to you guys before, I don't need a big bike because if I'm going to go any distance, I'm going to do it on three wheel. I want something to yeah. cruise around the neighborhood, take out for, you know, 90 minutes on a Saturday just to just to have a little two wheel tool around bike. And I don't for the life of me, know where the sweet spot is. Because if you... Now, that's 1999. Although my local scooter shop had it marked $300 over MSRP on the handlebar tag. I was like, yeah, yeah. that ain't happening. Um, and the guy was like, oh, this is the only one I got. You know, it's going to be a month and a half before I get another one. And the first person walks in here where the money's going to take it. I'm like, yeah, you're a scooter shop selling a Taiwanese... Uh, 125 good luck with that right but i've gone up and down the weight cc price scale about 10 times and there's no sweet spot (laughs) it's like i've so so like a yamaha fz03 isn't going to work for you i one of the things is i want to share it with my wife it can't be something that's going to be that sporty a riding position she's got blown out knees from playing basketball Bending her it, knees more than about 90 degrees is going to, you know, the rear set pegs and the forward low handlebars on that or the CB300, CBR300R are, are, are going to be prohibitive for yeah. her. Have you looked at the CSC RX3 adventure? I don't, need, I don't need an adventure bike. I don't, I don't need, and now they do make a, a sister to that, which is a which is, 250 yeah. TT. Yes. Uh, but it's a Chinese hawk. It, yeah. I just don't trust that. So yeah. I, I looked, I thought about an XT250 and while they're overpriced, the, yeah. the CRF is overpriced. I've thought about possibly, cause really I don't need something that's going to be highway legal. I thought about, uh, an S-Max well, 155 scooter, but I really don't want a scooter. Yeah. And unfortunately you go from two grand. And I don't want the Grom or the or the Z125 because yeah. they're just they're too small. Yeah, they are. Um, they're smaller than the K pipe, right? which which feels yeah. oh yes, which feels small to me. Ironically, yeah. the seat height isn't that different, and the but they are but like, they're really compact. The yeah. riding compartment is just tiny on them. Yeah, and and so I'm like, no, I don't want that. And then you start. 
every step you take up, you're adding like a grand or two to the I price. Know. It's like, okay, there's a whole lot of things at thirty nine ninety nine, and all of a sudden, everything beyond that is fifty nine ninety nine. And you're like, wow, okay. Uh, and then you're yeah. looking at a full size bike at a full size price, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to ride it that much, you know? Yeah, you know, we've said it a billion times, but. I mean, a used TW200. I, and believe me, I, I have <laughs> thought about the TW200 several, several times. I mean, I, I, you just, you can't go wrong because they're a good riding position, a good seat height. Anybody can ride one, but they hold their value too. So yeah. you're always, you're always going to be in a good spot on one. The, the one that's kind of intriguing me at the moment that I'm kind of playing with looking at maybe a used one is the TU250X single cylinder yeah. Suzuki mm-hmm. which is just kind of as close as you can get to a plain old 70s you know small displacement bike that's still yeah. large enough that you don't feel like you're on a toy or that people aren't going to see you right and it's it's also fuel injected and disc brakes and you know a lot of the things that I'm looking for that are going to make it more modern than yeah. my bike Pretty cheap too. I think they're like forty five hundred bucks, forty four hundred bucks, something like that. And unlike the TW two hundred, you can pick up used ones pretty cheap because I think there's a lot of people that bought them as first time learners, and if they don't, yeah. they decide they don't like motorcycles, you can find them with two or three grand on them, you know, two or three thousand yeah. miles on them. Yep, for sure. Well, well okay, we have we haven't even <laughs> we haven't even our started subject. our topic yet. Um, Okay, our our topic today is British bikes, which is something that uh, I don't know what you guys have had. I've had two. Um, yeah, I had a 1979 Triumph Bonneville that I bought brand new as a leftover. It was my second motorcycle. I went from the CL125S to a brand new leftover Kickstart Bonneville and uh, had that for about a year. Decided as a college student that I could not afford it. So I, I, now, to tell you, talk about kicking myself. I bought it brand new for $2,400. Yeah. I think it was actually $2,495. And I, what I really wanted was the 79 Special, the one with the cast wheels and the two-into-one exhaust, which most people in the British bike community just absolutely abhor as being a the worst bastardization of the Bonneville, uh, except for maybe the TSX later on. But uh, the uh, 79 Special was, I think, $400 more. I think it was 20 or $300 more. It was 28 rather than 25 uh, And I just didn't have the extra coin for it. I was pushing it to try and afford the standard, which I really did like. I didn't, it's not like I thought the, the, uh, original or the, the stock 79 standard was an ugly bike, but I kind of wanted the cast wheels and the two into one exhaust and the, the black and gold paint job. And I think part of it was I didn't buy what I really wanted. I kind of settled, you know, and every time you do that, I have learned when you go out to buy something, buy exactly the one you really want. Because when you settle and you get 95% of what you really wanted, you're always going to look at it and go, yeah, it's nice, but. And that just poisons an ownership. Is that 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks, is that worth 
having to look at your, the, you know, the, the money that you save, is that have, worth having to look at the motorcycle and think, man, I should have got the other one? You know, in many cases, no, it's not worth it. You should just get the one that you want. Yep, exactly. But, yeah. So um, whatever happened, when did you sell it? How long ago? I, I, I mean, did you? I only had it about a year because I was true. I was working at, and this is going to date me, a Fox photo, one hour photo booth <laughs> part time while going to school. And I just, I didn't have the coin. I sold it and I saved up my money for a couple months and I bought a 1971 BSA B50 SS. Yeah. And that was the least reliable bike I have ever owned. Well, you had to say it was BSA. I mean, that's kind of a... Yeah. It never ran more than 300 miles at a stretch without a breakdown. Either a uh, the chain breaking, the chain adjuster breaking, uh, the throttle cable breaking. It never, ever charged. There was some kind of intermittent problem with the charging that it would routinely stop charging the battery, and then it became a total loss ignition system Without any indication, with no instrumentation to let you know that that had happened until you, it started sputtering and you drifted off to the side of the road uh, yeah. with a dead bike <laughs> and a dead battery. So, so are are British bikes uh, similar to British cars in terms of uh, reliability? They are exactly like British yeah. cars. I don't have a lot of experience with British motorcycles, um, other than knowing about the culture. And, and the bikes, but I've never owned one. Um, my neighbor owns a super cool Triumph Bonneville that I always drool at when he drives by. But that's about it for me for experience. Although I do have experience with British cars. Mine, luckily, has always been good. Uh, can't say that about all of them. Um, to, give but, you, to give you an idea, my Bonneville uh, had both of the pistons and rings replaced at 24 hundred miles because it was Ouch. smoking so bad and their comment was i don't think you know how to break these in properly yeah. like, i was like it's yeah. smoking so bad that you'll cover it under warranty and then turn around and try and tell me that somehow i did something wrong in riding it the first 2400 miles yeah well i think british motorcycling luckily um their culture like the the interesting things about their culture have kind of overshadowed the um, reliability or poor nature of some of their motorcycles. I think that when you talk about British motorcycles, people naturally kind of think about the whole cafe racer culture and the movement of um, that style of motorcycle from, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s. And I think that really kind of overshadows the motorcycles. And some of them are really good. Don't get me wrong. Some of them weren't. So very good. My, I uh, as a kid, uh, the the guy across the street, uh, the guy who lived across the street from us, he actually worked for uh, Ma Bell. That that that'll date me and people. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, and then uh, what was it when they broke it up? Was it a? I don't think it was a Ameri- Maybe it was Ameritech at that time when when they broke up Ma Bell. But anyways, um, he was uh, he liked to fix things. Like he would he would buy these junk Corvettes. And basically rebuild them, and they looked brand new by the time he was done. That was like his hobby, and um, he had done that with a, um, I think it was either a '72 or a '73 uh, Norton 
850 Commando or Commando 850. So that was my real first exposure to British bikes. And he, he rarely rode it, but I, I, it, it, it was such a beautiful bike. And when he did ride it and it had a sound and a look, um, so that, that left an impression with me. Um, never got to ride it, of course, because I was a little too young. But um, the as far as riding, I've ridden a few, but mostly modern ones. Um, the uh, the modern Thruxton after that was done, and then also the the Triumph. Actually, all three of them are Triumphs. The Thruxton, which was just like a demo ride kind of thing, but it had the arrow pipe on it, so it sounded really good. Um, and then I had a, uh, a a street triple R for a day, mm-hmm. which I absolutely loved. That thing was just amazing. And then, and I always forget the name of it, but whatever the big twenty three hundred cc three cylinder cruiser bike is, yeah. Um, and I absolutely hated that bike. Yeah, <laughs> it was just so big, heavy, and unwieldy. That's got the six cylinder motor in it, right? No, it was a three cylinder twenty three hundred cc inline three. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh man, that's weird. I don't know if I know about that one. Uh, I so the modern. I think Triumphs. When you're talking about modern British bikes, Triumph is uh, not the only one, but they're really it's the only, it's kind the of the last major ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when I was buying my Buell um, back in 2005, I was looking um, at some of the different Triumphs. In a couple years, I don't remember when the 675 came out. I think it might have been. Uh, 2006. Um, but I really, really liked the Daytona 675. I love the sound of it. The three cylinder mm-hmm. motors just sound so good. Um, and, and like you said, the speed triple, those are such amazing motorcycles. Um, I would even love to have one now. Uh, but they just, the, the British bikes, especially the new ones, just haven't really done it for me. I, I think they're okay. And and they're even good, but for some reason I've just I haven't really gravitated towards them. And I don't know if you guys are uh, similar. I mean, I, there's, just, there's we a, don't even really talk a, about them, and maybe that's for a reason. There's a few here and there. I mean, there's a, the one I pulled this up just so I could get all the information right on it. Like from the old bikes, yeah, it, it's one of those things of if you're gonna ride it like once a month, I think like a vintage. And when I say vintage, meaning like 50s to early 70s, pick your brand would be cool. Not as anything, you know, sort of as an occasional weekend Sunday Sunday morning ride. I think it'd be great because it's because of the issues they have. You got to spend Saturday making sure it's good to go for the Sunday ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but if there was one that kind of spoke to me other than a Vincent, because obviously that's sort of like a, well, hello, yeah, what do you, you know, uh, or maybe a Bruff, which, you know, if I win the Powerball or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but the other one, it's it's a goofy bike. It wasn't necessarily that good, but I liked it because it was goofy, was the Aerial Square 4. Yeah. Um, and, and it was an oddball in that, A, it was a four-cylinder. It was a 1,000 cc, uh, which was pretty odd for back in the day. And I think, it, uh, where did I see it? It only made like 45 horsepower. Um, which seems so probably odd, but a ton of torque. Yeah, and it and it only weighed, according to this, uh, it was uh, like 440 pounds. So oh, really, relatively speaking, it was light. I mean, yeah. for as big as that motor is. So exactly. Um, but I think yeah. because of the layout, they had some like they had a lot of cooling issues and stuff like that, if I remember right. But yeah, um, it's, the way uh, the exhaust pipes come up off of the cylinder and the the whole way the cylinder is designed, it looks. Um, kind of relatively short and fat, but 
Um, I could see how it would have some cooling problems, but, you know, just looking at this motorcycle and, and kind of thinking about classic British motorcycles in general, um, the styling, especially in the classic ones, has always been really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. cla- classic British bikes, it's really hard to argue with the styling of very many of them. Um, and like you talked about, the Black Shadow especially. God, is there anything more beautiful than that as far as a motorcycle goes? Not really. You know, I mean, for me, I am old enough that I was. I can remember going to a motorcycle show and seeing a Vincent Black Shadow with a handlebar fairing or handlebar windshield and hard saddlebags in the parking lot of the motorcycle show that someone had just ridden to the show really? and it had touring gear on it. And it now they've become this, this thing that's so totally removed from any sort of reality, you know, a, a real world, uh, mm-hmm. use or experience. I feel really lucky that I actually, can remember when they were just a motorcycle that you would see. Granted, that was not just riding on the street. The guy was taking it to a vintage show, but it was yeah. still something ridden to a show. And it wasn't, yeah. and it wasn't a stock bike. It was something that somebody had set up to be his touring motorcycle. But they have never really just been an average motorcycle. I mean, from the very first time they came out, they had an enormous reputation, but additionally, they didn't really make that many of them. So to be able to have seen one is, is really kind of neat because I mean, they, there are so few that yeah, but, it would be lucky to ever time. have that's seen That's not one. the only time that I saw somebody, somebody out just, uh, you know, in, I think every year that I went to the steamboat motorcycle week, somebody, I saw one go down main street. You know, yeah. nowadays they're all in museums or are, you know, taken out for for Concor events. Yeah. Well, that's because they've become so ridiculously expensive. Right. Uh, yeah. you, but I mean, it's getting know. to the point like uh, like early 9-11s. Is an early 9-11 really worth one hundred or one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or like some of the special editions from the early 70s? They're worth a quarter million dollars. Not, not really. Although someone's willing to pay for it, and if that's the case, do you really want to yeah. take that out and worry about damaging? Let alone if you're in the seven figures with some Italian car. So I yeah. mean, it kind of falls in that same that same thing. Well, same with the the Vincent Black Shadow. I can understand why people wouldn't ride them now. Um, however many there are is however many there's ever going to be, and and the chances of harming it are just too great to just be able to take it and ride it around. I mean, really they should and, be protected. And the other, the other thing is that given how crowded mo- modern streets are, do you really want to have those breaks? Yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, they were, they I were, mean, they were awesome for the day, but always well, considered yeah. give I mean, yourself a couple hundred feet. Of, of this vintage. Like, I mean, if you're talking about like pre-war or even just slightly post-war motorcycles, I mean, do you really want to ride one of those anyways? I mean, they're beautiful to look at, but I'm not even sure I would. I would don't get me wrong. If I got the opportunity to ride a Black Shadow, I absolutely would. Um, but I will it say probably that, wouldn't be something that I wanted to ride very much. I will say that there's probably a whole lot more 57 Harley dressers out actually being ridden. Yeah. 
on a on a regular basis than there are probably any uh any bikes from other countries i would even i was going to say british bikes but then i thought well no probably japanese italian anything else probably that's probably tells us says more about harleys than it does about Brit- british bikes so i'm gonna have to withdraw that statement yeah yeah well the kind of the oddest one i think um is the Velocit viper which i mean still very very cool motorcycle um but kind of a weird weird looking thing although uh they were i think pretty fast and um, i'm sorry what what bike the Velocit viper isn't it Velocet? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you know much about it, Pete? Um, no. I, you know, everything, the, the, all the big singles, the AMC singles, the, the matchlets, uh, Velocet, uh, what are some of the other, other, uh, the Manx Nortons, um, they all mm-hmm. kind of, uh, fell into the same by the time i got into it they were old enough that they were already being collected and they were already expensive and they weren't accessible enough for me to really take an interest in but i could buy an oil frame you know an oil and frame bsa for money that i saved up you know i think i bought mine for a thousand dollars my my bsa uh you could buy a new triumph you could those those were things that an ordinary people could buy and the the Velocet Thruxtons and the and the Matchless, uh, they were already they were like Manx Nortons. They were they were not something that you wanted to ride on the street because of things like brakes and stuff like that. And they were they were just too esoteric for me to think. Yeah, I would actually go buy one of those. Gotcha. Yeah, it's. It's funny because as I think more about this, it's like I think part of the attraction to British bikes, especially today, is the nostalgia. Um, and and I think that's hard to say because I was not that I'm not old enough. But were they as popular in America as you would think they would be because of all the and I'll use the word in quotes enthusiast talk? I mean, were they common or were they were they were they sort of I'm not an exotic, but sort of. Well, it, you saw them, but they were you were, you didn't see a lot of them, kind of thing. Up in where it was mostly Harleys and whatever else. In 1965 or 1966, if you wanted to have a fast, sporty bike, the question is: Did you want the Did you want the Sportster or did you want the Bonneville? Those those hmm. were your two fast bikes. You know, they were what the Hayabusa was in the 90s or you know, early 2000s, whenever they came out and they were the fastest thing or, uh, an H2 today, you know, they, they were the, now they, I, I guess I shouldn't say H2 because they're always, always the, the Vincent and stuff, but although Vincent was gone yeah, uh, un, until the, uh, H1 Kawasaki came out, those were your two choices in a fast bike were, yeah. uh, so they were popular and they were common because they were the way to go fast. I guess the Norton, was always a little faster than the Bonneville, but it was also more expensive. Yeah. Um, and it really wasn't until they came out with the ice elastic suspension and made them comfortable that they sold in any real big numbers in the United States. 
most of these uh, British motor, well, all of these British motorcycles predate me by quite a way. So I don't really know as much about them as you guys do. But I guess from my perspective is it doesn't seem like they caught on quite like they should have. Um, maybe in the early days before Japanese motorcycles started becoming more popular. Well, not just more popular, but more performance oriented. Well, and um, I would say that the the thing with the Japanese bikes and probably starting in about 65, 66 was part of it was price. And I think the other thing was they were just dead reliable, especially the Hondas were, were just dead reliable where where the, you know, a, a Harley or a or a, or a, a Triumph. You're like, OK, let me uh, let me pick, clean up that oil there a little bit where a Honda, it, it didn't drip or yeah. it shouldn't have. Um so I think that was that was the other thing too was that just how reliable they were. There are a couple of really good books on the cataclysmic downfall of the British motorcycle industry that is, you know, something they study in business classes. And it was a perfect storm of the Japanese getting their act together. And unfortunately the British really discounted the Japanese as as, you know, being substandard, they would never build anything but mopeds. And then they came out with like the, the 305 Superhawk, the CB77. All of a sudden it was like, wow, this, this, you know, was really reliable and cheap to buy and handled not great, but good enough. And, uh, they should have woken up at that point. And then, you know, uh, Honda went to the Isle of Man. And started cleaning up there. And they kept saying, they'll never build a big bike. They'll never build a big bike. Then Honda built the 450 Twin, the CB450, that was darn near as fast as a 650 BSA or Triumph and was more reliable. And they still didn't pay any attention. And then they came out with the CB750. And everyone kind of went, oh, because that was like two months after they came out with the Rocket 3 and the Trident, which were the fastest motorcycles in the world for like two months, the CB750 was just so much better because it was more comfortable. It was more reliable. It was it was a truly modern design. The Triumph and the BSA basically traced their lineage all the way back to the Speed Twin. It was mm-hmm. a 500cc Speed Twin that they kind of just extended it. If you look at the architecture, you know, there's two push rods in between two of the cylinders, and then there's just an extra one in between the other two because it was designed as a twin and then extended into a, a triple. And they used chain drive primary. So when you made it wider, you, it was really hard to get the gearbox where you wanted it. And uh, they didn't use uh, high-pressure casting methods, which were required to do horizontally split cases, which is why they leaked. Um, they did all of these things, really expensive roller bearings instead of uh, plain bearings, plain bla- bearings for the cranks. Yeah. So there was just so many things that they just dropped the ball. And if you look at their sales, they were still selling strongly in 69 and 70. By 73, they had tanked. Well, and I was thinking, wasn't it about 72, 73 when the economy, world economies kind of went in the tank with, uh, uh, first OPEC and, and, mm-hmm. uh, all that. So that certainly, I mean, if you're struggling and then you throw a, a big road stop in the economy, then that pretty much was a, 
would have been a death knell right there. Well, right. The automotive industry kind of tanked right there in seven, you know, 72 and into 73 automotive industry and, and kind of the motorcycles industry was probably impacted pretty significantly at the same time. And that's also when there were so many labor strikes in mm-hmm. Britain. The, the, you know, there were coal strikes. The, there were some really smart people in England who could have built a world beating motorcycle and stayed mm-hmm. on top of the market. And between the trade unions and the government and the uh, management, a lot of people want to blame the unions. I have to say it was the management that did the most harm. And part of it was blame. You have to blame the government because the government started seeing all these little failing companies. You know, when anybody was struggling, they would kind of uh, by decree them up force them to merge with a bigger company. So then all of a sudden you had AMC that had all of these little brands, you know, uh, uh, AJS, which was the one I was trying to think of earlier, matchless AJS. Uh, they all kind of kept rolling them into these larger conglomerate groups until BSA and Triumph were one kind of big conglomerate. And then AMC, which was, uh, Norton and Matchless and AJS, they ended up being all kind of rolled in and when they were going to close the Meriden plant. And the, this is so bizarre to hear this story in America in the 21st century, but the employees went in, had a sit in strike. And at some point after 18 months, the government said, okay, you can have the factory and all of the intellectual property of the Triumph brand. I, I mean, the idea that workers would be able to do that just continues to blow my mind. But that's how the the Bonneville stayed in production at Bonneville or at uh, Meriden up and through '83. Did Triumph ever stop production? Yeah, they went they went belly up in 1983, and John Bluer, who had knew nothing about motorcycles, he was a real estate developer uh, or an, an industrial. Some kind of industrial magnet. Industrial guy, yeah. And he, uh, he said, Hey, there's, there's some, a lot of brand loyalty out there. I'm kind of what Polaris did with Indian. There's enough cachet in the name that he bought the Meriden plant to do a real estate development. And then instead of selling off the Triumph name, he thought, no, I'm going to hold on to this. And he had, uh, Les Harris built some truly, truly horrid, uh, Bonnevilles in kind of a trickle for a year or two. Uh, and the, the quality control was just disastrous, uh, because they couldn't, they had worn out tooling. The guy, to his, to his credit, he had nothing to work with. Uh, he had leftovers from what was, what was salvaged from the Meriden plant and he continued to build Less Harris contracted Bonnevilles for, I don't know, 18 months, two years, something like that, until finally Bloor pulled the plug and said, if we're going to do this, we need to do this right, and invested an incredible amount of money in a brand new plant, hired some people to design an all-new motorcycle, and they came out well, with the... The, well, des- the- design a new motorcycle in quotes, because essentially it wasn't a copy of one of the Kawasaki's. At least the motor. It it was uh, surprisingly it borrowed quite a bit from the 900 Deanna, which was the last design from 
the Meriden plant that they were trying to raise the money to build, but they were so in debt at that point that they couldn't, the, all they could do was make a, uh, some castings of the engines and a wooden mock-up of what the, <laughs> at the last Earl's Court show they went to, they actually had to put their new 900 Deanna that was coming up on about a uh, top of a eight foot display because it was made of wood. And they didn't want people to realize that it was nothing more than a wooden mock-up. <laughs> so they, they had to put it so no one could get within eight or nine feet of it to really look closely at it because they just, they were out of money. And the government finally got in and said, no, we're, we're done propping you up. And they pulled the plug and they had to sell off the land. And the Meriden plant was big enough that it was worth money for land. So they, they tore it all down and less Harris built a couple using the old one, but it, it was obvious that a lot of the stuff they were using to build Bonneville's in 1979, 80, 81 were pre World War II machines. You know, the, the, the machining equipment they were using was built in the thirties and they were still uh-huh. using it because that's all they had. Yeah. Well, I don't think that between the 50s and the 80s, Triumph especially, but just British motorcycles in general, really changed technologically a whole lot. They they tried. Uh, Yeah. They did design the 350 Bandit and Fury, the BSA Fury and the Triumph Bandit, that were sort of new. Unfortunately, they hired uh, Edward Turner, who had designed, designed like every British twin since the original 500 speed twin before World War II to design it. But it was an overhead, dual overhead cam engine. Uh, it was a fairly modern attempt to be modern, clean sheet design. Uh, and unfortunately, he designed this really horrible, horrible, really flimsy frame for it, still using, you know, 1950s paradigms for how you design a motorcycle frame. And so they had to kind of go back in and at the last minute revise that. And they're per- they, they were already short on cash. They couldn't get suppliers to deliver stuff on time. And they actually had... They were ready to go into production, and they could not. Basically, the bankers pulled the plug on it and said, "No, go with what you have." And they, I think, there were two thousand production-ready crankcases that went to the smelter. They oh, were wow. that close to putting it into production. Now, I have read reviews of people who have ridden it since and said it still wasn't going to compete with a with a CB three fifty. It was still going to be more persnickety when it came to maintaining it and uh you know adjusting the valves and things like that and it was a pleasant bike but it wasn't like wow yeah i want to spend twelve hundred dollars more than a honda on this yeah and and they couldn't compete on price well it doesn't sound that dissimilar from where they're at today to be honest i mean they have improved their motorcycles are um competitive but I don't know if buyers are really gravitating towards them because their price point is generally a little bit higher. Um, they're doing some good things with their classic styling, 
And, and I think the buyers are kind of looking more at that lately. But is that enough really to rely on? I, I will say that I think that as far as the drivetrain, I have I don't have experience with, you know, switch gear and stuff like that. The drivetrain of the original three and four cylinder triumphs that they they came out of Hinkley. When John Bloor took over, he was so obsessed about these are going to be reliable. Nobody's going to be able to say British bikes are unreliable. <laughs> they overbuilt those things and mm-hmm. torture tested them so much and did so much quality control. They are to this day one of the most rock solid engines that you can buy. You can put a hundred thousand miles on those things, put a set of rings in them and do a hundred thousand miles again. Yeah. I know I've got friends who've who've owned uh street triples, uh speed speed triples, six seventy five Daytonas. Uh a couple of them are very hard on motorcycles in the sense of they're gonna if it's there to be used, they'll use it. Mm-hmm. Um they take care of it, but they're gonna use it hard. And off the top of my head, I can't think of them having any problems. And and that's going from track day to throwing bags on them and then doing like a, you know, thousand miles over five or six days of touring. So, yeah, um, they're they're pretty rock solid. And as far as pricing, um, honestly, the pricing on most modern Triumphs is pretty, pretty spot on. I mean, yes, they're more expensive than I mean, they kind of split the difference, right? They're usually a little more expensive than a Japanese bike, but they're less than, say, an equivalent BMW, Ducati, Aprilia. Right. So yeah. um, that's, um, you know, they kind of split the difference. So if you want something European, but you don't want to, you know, then there, it's there. And and a lot of it is trading on brand, brand name, brand loyalty, and there's nothing wrong with that. The classics certainly are going to keep the coffers filled. Um, they, they'll build all the classics styling ones they can get because they, they because they can. Um, and then work on, on some of the new bikes. Um, in fact, they just released a new version of the Triumph 800, which I think is specifically geared towards the value proposition because it doesn't have, it's only got like basic ABS. It doesn't have cornering ABS. It doesn't have, I don't think it's ride or throttle by wire. So it doesn't have some of the, the, the ride modes or the throttle modes, but you know, it's significantly less than let's say a, a BMW GS. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, looking at motorcycles, um, you know, I was talking about the FC 10 and the Super Duke and, and I was looking for something to be, to be able to compare to the Super Duke. Um, when I was imagining buying a motorcycle of that style and I really, I looked at the speed triple, but it just, there's something about it that just doesn't quite do it for me. And, And I think that it's, a, a, probably it's a good performing motorcycle and it's priced reasonably and all that. But I just, I've never really felt like I could gravitate towards some of the British bikes. Um, I like them for their styling in the past, but nowadays I just eh, don't really, don't really gravitate towards them. And I don't know if that's um, the same feeling amongst riders in my age group in general. I think that um, some people really like them, but I don't know if they're really quite doing enough to draw in the riders that they'll need in the long run. But I don't know. I could be wrong. I have to say that just sitting here looking at pictures of my uh, not mine, but the the brochure picture from 1979 of my red Bonneville 
even when I had it, yeah, I had to have the pistons and rings replaced. I loved that motorcycle. I loved riding that motorcycle. To this day, I would love to own that motorcycle. There is something... It's easy to forget that for a good part of the 20th century, the technological leaders in motorcycling were in England. That they yeah. they developed some of the... You know, they, they were doing four-valve heads and things like that way back when in the in the mm-hmm. 30s they uh they were considered to be the most reliable bike in the world that's why you know uh people around the world used british military you know, bsa military bikes uh were very coveted as being something that would run forever now the level of maintenance that they required and what was expected of you know, the kind of breakdowns that people were willing to tolerate was a whole lot different, but that that's because there wasn't anything better out there. Yeah. So you're ready to throw on that red leather riding suit and buy yourself a <laughs> you know, classic I, no, motorcycle? No, that, that came later. I, I had Japanese bikes by then. I think <laughs> I actually, what was I, when I bought that, I had the FT500 single the the 500 ascot single was my was mm-hmm. my bike and i was styling on that let me tell you i i don't even, even I don't more so on the mb5 you know of course you could never be more styling than when riding an mb5 in that sweet riding suit now now how would that look on a tw200 so uh you know embrace it let's find out so is is there any any of the classic british or modern is there a British bike? We've already talked about the Vincent. Anything else that you guys think, wow, yeah, I would really like to have one of those. You know, a uh, an AJS Stormer dirt bike or a P11 uh, Desert Sled or a uh, or even a new uh, uh, a new Daytona or something that you guys. Well, I do really like the Daytonas. As I said earlier, the 675s have always really really like if i were going to buy a middleweight bike um sport bike i would probably buy the 675 but i'm not going to buy a middleweight sport bike and as far as classic bikes go i'm i I like the styling i like looking at pictures of them but there's honestly no classic british motorcycle that i've ever considered or probably will ever consider purchasing um i like like my neighbor's, um, his Bonneville, he's got, you know, the semi off-road tires on it. And, and he bought the motorcycle. It was a family that owned it since new and they used it for trail riding. And it's got the big wide bars on it and it's got the dirt tires on it. And I really kind of like that idea of a dirt road triumph kind of dual sport type of thing. Um, but really for me, eh, it just doesn't, just doesn't quite do it for me like the Japanese bikes always have. As far as classic ones for me, I'm going to say no. I think it's one of those things I like to look at them. I like that other people are willing to do the work to keep them up and running. But I don't think for the little riding that I get to do that I would want to put that much effort into it, at least where I sit today. Um, But from a modern standpoint, uh, I still always go back to the Street Triple R 675 triple, 105, 110 horsepower, absolutely rips. 
Um, and for a naked bike, there's no buffeting at, on, uh, at highway speeds on it. So that, and then the, the new Thruxton is just dead sexy. It's a little overpriced, but, uh, especially when you go to put the good suspension parts on it. But if I wanted a, I, I, that would be the answer to, I want classic looks and modern reliability for me. Um, now, if Norton ever did another rotary, you know, <laughs> build another rotary, okay, well, then we'll talk, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. For the Thruxton, if I were if I were looking at something classically styled, I think that I would probably go to the Ducati Scrambler if it were me. I don't know. Maybe not. Our uh, our buddy uh, Cam over at Camden Tub just uh, rode one on a, on a demo day, and he seemed to, seemed to love it. But from a couple people I've talked to, the build quality you can tell is it's definitely built to a price. Yeah, is is what people have relayed to me. Now, you know they they they're extremely biased on some of that stuff. So take yeah. that with you know a box of salt, let alone a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the the one when I say modern, I mean Hinkley uh, Triumph that I would really like was the original. Uh, 900 Trident that they came out with. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, their first naked 900, I, I th- thought was really attractive at the time, and I still do. I, it, it's kind of out of date. It, it looks a little too. 70s? Well, I was going to say 80s Japanese. It looks too yeah, much okay. like it could be a Yamaha Seika, but especially mm. the, the wheels, the brakes, the, the suspension. Yep. But, it's one that I have a great fondness for. I also, now, even though I said it was a really, really bad deal, I think the new trophy is a spectacular looking motorcycle that was probably really nice. Their, their new, uh, sport touring bike is, is really attractive. I think it's overpriced, but it may not be if it's as reliable as they have been in the past. Yeah. I think, um, if I, if I could, if, if I, had disposable income and I could buy a 76 on left-hand shift Bonneville, uh, you know, the later Meriden Bonnevilles like I had, I would be tempted. But I think my, I'm not sure there's anything else that I would really want except for some really obscure old stuff that I would really like strictly as collector's items. I think one of the neatest motorcycles is what they call the sloper, the Panther 600 single. Uh, the, the cylinder was positioned where the down tube normally is on a bike. It bolted mm-hmm. to the, to the steering head and to the swing arm pivot and created one. Uh, another one is the cotton, Blackburn, what they called the straight frame cotton. It was one of the first real sporty, uh, what you would call a sports motorcycle. That's a cool, and, that's a cool and, looking bike. And, like it, and it was one of the smartest early. Now it doesn't have rear suspension. It's a hardtail, but it was from the, from the twenties. And, uh, I can't think of the guy, Mr. Cotton sat down and said, uh, okay, I'm going to, I need to triangulate the steering head, the engine, and the rear axle 
And so he literally took out a straight edge and said, I need to connect these with the strongest, straightest triangulation that I can without making it heavy. And he came up with these really light, small diameter tubes and ran multiples of them between the back of the transmission, the back wheel, and the steering head as straight as he could. And he came up with a really, really, I think, cool-looking, different design. I would love to build a replica of that with maybe a, uh, oh, some kind of little single-cylinder modern engine in it. Yeah. CR two CR two fifty. I, I was thinking yeah. maybe maybe like a, an XR three fifty R motor or something like that. Yeah, something that's still got the cooling fins on the side, so it looks a little bit retro. But yeah, I like yeah. the styling of it. It looks pretty cool. It's almost like they took an engine and and kind of leaned it forward and then designed the frame triangularly around the engine. It looks pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. Now those would be both of those would be really expensive you know, uh, put it in your living room kind of things, not something I'm going to go, you know, cruise down to the, to the Sonic with. Right. Cool. I'm really surprised that you guys, neither of you go, yeah, I'm not sure there's anything I want British. And yeah, I never took that much into that. I, I truly, my early years of riding immersed myself in British bikes because I thought they were just cooler than everything else. Uh, some of it yeah. was in high school. My best friend had an 850 Norton Interstate. So when I was on my little CB125, <laughs> he was cruising around in his Norton. So it was like, well, yeah, if you really want a cool bike, you buy something British. That was just kind of something that that was built into me from when I first started riding. Yeah, for, well, for me, it's it's the it's that by the time I was starting to be interested in motorcycles like realistically was early to mid eighties. And by then what was around, it was all, it was all Japanese bikes. Like other than, except like I said, my neighbor who had that 850 Norton, which if I'm going vintage, that'd probably it just because that bike, I love that bike so much as a kid, that would be about where I would go with a, with a vintage bike. But I mean, it was so Japanese bikes were, were the thing. There really wasn't anything else unless you wanted a Harley. And I'd, was never a Harley guy. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's why, I mean, British bikes were sort of, okay, yeah, that was, then it was kind of cool. And certainly the styling, but that was about it. That was about it for me. You know, yeah, and, and, f- and going back to what we were originally talking about with British cars, uh, one of the reasons I was attracted to British bikes is because the first car I fell in love with was my neighbor's Austin Healey 3000 Mark III. He had a 67 Austin Healey that he would take me for rides on. And that's what got me into cars and, kind of gearhead stuff anyway so i was already predisposed to okay all the coolest stuff comes from england yeah and for me you got to remember that when i started riding motorcycles when i got my license it was in the 2000s oh stop that yeah (laughs) i'm so And, and, and then additionally um you know my family and my dad the race shop that he's owned forever um it has always been japanese race bikes and so I never even knew anybody that had a British bike. The only things that I ever knew of British bikes were just kind of from being in, around motorcycles, but um, it was always Japanese bikes. Um, I, I've always really liked British cars um, 
from the time I was pretty young, I always thought the MGBs were really cool. And so that's why I ended up um, buying one. Uh, and so like for some things, I've kind of uh, had a fondness for the British, but um, it's never really been the motorcycles. And so there's never been one that I just really, really wanted to have because nobody that I knew ever had them. <sighs> helps me understand how long it's really been since I started riding and and how much things have changed. Yeah. Well, let's see. I think I got my license in 2003 when I was 16. Yeah. So Thanks. I guess that dates me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it, to me, there is, you know, there's a lot of people who really can't get past everything should look like a Harley. Part of me really wants everything to still look like a British bike. And I did have the W650, which I think was the only bike that's come along that's out-Britished the British for, <laughs> for looks. Out-Britished the British. I like that. Yeah, and then uh, they just announced that they're discontinuing the W800 for good. Oh, really? So, Even yeah. in Japan? Yep. Wow. Uh, I saw that in the last week. I think I saw something about a blurb about that. So interesting. Mm. I'm sure. I'm sure every hipster with money is is disappointed too. <laughs> yeah. Because there's always a rumor that they're going to bring in the United States next year. It's coming next year. It really is. I was like, that's yeah. what they always say. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen. Well, I think right. we have we have exhausted whatever depth we have in <laughs> among British bikes. I don't think that you've exhausted every depth that you have in British bikes. <laughs> well, you know, some of it is. Um, I was a I was a Triumph BSA guy, and specifically an oil and frame Triumph BSA guy. So my real desire. Practically speaking, for most of my riding when it came to British bikes was from 1971 to 1983. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I never really wanted any of the really old stuff. Yeah. And I probably have a greater desire for something like a Panther or a, a Cotton now than I ever did when I was younger. Yeah. I, I will say this, uh, as, as, and this comes mostly because I have a marketing degree and spend so much my life, adult life in marketing and sales and promotion at some level. Um, I love vintage ads just because I like looking back at how things have been done yeah. in the past. And on our theme of British bikes, what the Norton ads were in the early seventies up to from like 70 to about 74, 75. In, in in today's overly politically correct world, they provide so much entertainment because they are yeah. just so blatantly sexist. Right, <laughs> and they they literally like they're okay. They're they border on Playboy pornography with clothes on. I mean, that's yeah. kind of uh, considering what was goes. what. It's interesting. In some ways, that was more acceptable now than or more acceptable then than it would be now even though it was much more risque then. Oh, yeah. Being sex sexist and risque was almost more allowable, even though what they were showing was pushing the the social uh, limits of what you could show in an ad. 
Yeah, that's yeah. true. The interesting thing is there was one Norton ad that they shot differently for the U.S. and for England. There is one ad where she has her shirt partially unbuttoned in the U.S. ad, and it is completely open in the British ad because they were huh. afraid of having. They were like, "No, you, we we can't show that one in in the U.S." So it's surprised that surprising that in the U.S. she would be more buttoned up than oh back an ad in back Britain. then no because no, they had page it, three girls that were topless in the newspaper back then yeah really yeah. And, and if you think we, there's still puritanical BS that goes on today in the U.S., it was 100 times worse 40 years ago. Yeah. There's one well, one uh, just before we close out talking about ads. You, Eric, you reminded me about a particular uh, Triumph ad that I thought was really making uh, lemons out of lemonade or making lemonade out of lemons rather. Uh, and I think it was 78, they had a picture of a guy kickstarting a Bonneville with the caption, some bikes challenge egos. And basically the text <laughs> is all about, um, you know, yeah, if you really can't handle a Kickstarter, go buy a Japanese bike. Cause you know, if you can't do it, you can't do it. And we understand. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was about the it last big bike that, that didn't have an electric. Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, and and I thought it was really an effective way to turn not having an electric starter, which was such a huge liability, into something they could actually maybe pick up a few uh, of their remaining customers that way. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Hey, don't forget to follow us on, uh, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash, uh, oh crap. <laughs> the false neutrals? Slash, oh crap. Thank you. No, that's not, no, 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 I, I, neutrals. I was making fun of you. Facebook.com forward slash the false neutral and at Twitter at the false neutral. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, Please. So, we're, we're Please not going to social media. And listen to the Hooniverse podcast in Camden Tubbed because they're part of the network that we're Hooniverse on, which Empire. really isn't a network. We just call ourselves. Well, I guess we all post on the Hooniverse. So, yes. Okay. Goodbye. Right. So long. Well, I think we've screwed this up well enough. <laughs> it's okay. See you next week.